traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for itself after centuries of fighting. This is your Mad Prophet of the Airwaves, and welcome to Radio Free Canada. News, notes, and opinions from the underground for Monday, July 11th, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Could anybody, someone, I don't know, maybe the President of the United States, could someone please tell Hunter Biden to put some clothes on? My Lord. This weekend, we saw Hunter sliding naked down a pool slide. We saw Hunter naked in bed, holding a pistol while engaged in some self-gratification. We saw Hunter measuring some kind of illicit pharmaceutical on a scale whilst in the company of a prostitute. What was that, crack cocaine? I don't know. I'm not up in my illicit drugs. That's some first family you got there, grumpy Joe Biden. Some first family. A, A New York Times poll out today looking pretty grim for Beijing Biden. Biden facing an alarming level of doubt from inside his own party. 64% 
of Democrat voters saying they would prefer a new standard bearer in the 2024 president, presidential campaign. Again, this is a New York Times Siena College poll. Voters nationwide have soured on Biden's leadership, giving him a meager 33% job approval rating. Widespread concerns about the economy and, and inflation have uh, really helped turn the national mood decidedly dark both on Biden and the direction of the United States. More than three-quarters of registered voters see, see the United States moving in the wrong direction. There's this pervasive sense of pessimism that spans every corner of the country, every age range and racial group, cities, suburbs, rural areas, both sides of the, uh, the political spectrum. Only 13%, 13 percent of American voters say the nation was on the right track. The lowest point in the New York Times polling since the depths of the financial crisis more than a decade ago. Meanwhile, the Conservative Party of Canada edging out the Liberals by five percentage points when it comes to who Canadians would vote for. This according to Nanos Research's latest federal ballot tracking. Pollster Nick Nanos said the Conservatives sit at 36% of ballot support, while the Liberals sit at 31. The NDP at 19, the Bloc at 6, the Greens at 5, the People's Party at 3. Now, as bad as the Liberals are, the Conservatives are only five points higher in the polls. That should be, they should be 25% higher. It's almost a statistical tie once you factor in the margin of error. You know, the, the ancient Athenians had it right. And I was reading about this today. I live, as you well know, in a predominantly Greek household. And so the mighty Aphrodite plopped this in front of me this morning as we enjoyed our morning coffee out on the front porch. In ancient Athens, the world's first democracy, they had a process called ostracism. Once a year, the people would vote on the politician they thought was most destructive to the democratic process. And the winner, quote, end quote, the winner was banished from Athens for a period of 10 years. 10 years. Wouldn't that be nice if we could bring that practice of ostracism to the West in 2022? Who would we banish? It might be easier and quicker to answer who wouldn't we banish for 10 years. But banishing gropey blackface and deputy dimwit and mendacious Marco Mendicino and the minister of sinister Bill Blair, banishing them from Ottawa wouldn't accomplish much because there's always Zoom. No, we, we need to do the ancient Athenians one better. Banish them to Baffin Island for 25 years with no internet. Now that's ostracization, the Canadian version. Now, I was going to save this piece of audio for Wednesday and Tony Heller when we push back against the cult of climate change, and I'll probably play it again on Wednesday, but it's, it's just too good not to share with you now. This is Godfrey Bloom. He's a European Parliament MP for UKIP. That's the United Kingdom Independent Party, started by Nigel Farage. 
And I didn't realize the UK was still sending MPs to sit in the European Parliament since Brexit, no matter. Here he is absolutely destroying the man-made climate change hoax. Have a listen. Uh, well, uh, Mr. President, I take the uh, opportunity of uh, wishing the East European cities well in the coming of the very early skiing season uh, and snow and ice that's come there. What, of course, is indicative of the fact that, as independent science has now confirmed, that the globe is actually cooling and has been cooling since 2002, broadly flat since 1998. Uh, so uh, we're all talking about something here which isn't happening. I've heard time and time again members here talk of CO2 as a pollutant, a pollutant. It's a life-giving natural gas. It gives me the impression that some of our members haven't had the benefit of a formal education. Isn't this really just about the state being able to get its hand in ordinary people's trouser pocket to steal yet more tax from them? Isn't this all about political control? Isn't all this about politics and big business? The whole thing's a sham. This bogus hypothesis, this ridiculous nonsense that man-made CO2 is causing global warming. Enough, please, before we damage irrevocably the global economy. Oh, brilliant. He's absolutely correct. Godfrey Bloom. And of course, more and more of the world waking up to this fact that people in Sri Lanka are revolting against their government because they've woken up to the, this dangerous scam. The Dutch farmers are in revolt for the same reason. The World Economic Forum gang are attempting to institute climate change lockdowns, just as you were warned on this program at least six months ago. But this time, but this time, I don't think the people will comply. Now, the rest of the world won't comply. I have my serious doubts about Canadians, regrettably. I think many would comply here. If gropey blackface and deputy dimwit and the minister of sinister told Canadians to bend over and kick themselves in the backside, about three quarters of Canadians would say, how hard? And that's the sad truth. Novak Djokovic won his fourth consecutive Wimbledon title on the weekend. Normally, I couldn't possibly care less. Except, except that Djokovic has steadfastly, steadfastly refused to be coerced into getting the COVID-19 genetic therapy. He's willing to forfeit his career rather than subject himself to a forced vaccination. And for this... Novak Djokovic is a hero. He has my utmost respect and admiration. And likely he won't be allowed to compete at the U.S. Open because of vaccine requirements. But he doesn't care. Have a listen. My decision was not going to Australia and I was prepared not to go. And I understand that not being vaccinated today, I, you know... I'm unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. And, and that's the price you're willing to pay? Uh, that, that is the price that I'm yeah. willing to pay. Ultimately, are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically, because you feel so strongly about this jab? Yes. I do. But as things stand... If this means that you miss the French Open, is that a price you'd be willing to pay? Yes, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. And if it means that you miss Wimbledon this year, again, that's a price you're willing to pay? 
Yes. Why, Novak? Why? Why? Because the principles of uh, decision making on my body uh, are more important than any title or anything else. This BBC reporter, why, Novak? Why? Simply clueless. The idea of bodily autonomy doesn't even register. He doesn't. He can't even comprehend it. What does that mean? It's like Djokovic is speaking a foreign language. It's unbelievable. You know, I heard a former colleague who now hosts a, uh, a radio program up in Ottawa try to argue that Djokovic is afraid to take the COVID jab. Afraid? He's willing to put aside his entire career on a matter of principle, a vitally important principle, perhaps one of the most important. And this guy is accusing him of cowardice? Can you imagine? I don't understand the thinking process of some people. All right, astronomers the world over are waiting with breathless anticipation for the first images of the deepest views of the universe ever taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. You of our York University astronomer Paul Delaney will be here, the last order of business to discuss. And those images actually should be released by the time uh, Paul joins us. Kian Bexty from The Counter Signal will be here, second hour, with the latest on the Dutch Farmers' Revolt. God bless the farmers of the Netherlands. Their fight will soon be our fight. The survivalist Stefan Verstappen will be here with our ongoing series on forming communities. Today, how to create a food co-op. Now, with inflation and possible food shortages coming our way, you definitely want to tune in this hour for this conversation. A federal agency in, in uh, Canada invested millions of dollars in a Chinese company accused of using slave labor. Tom Korsky from Blacklock's Reporter is here this hour with that story. But first, all the pain at the pumps we're experiencing. It's all by design. Franco Terrazano, National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, joins me to discuss the Richard Serrett Show, off and running for Monday, July 11th. Facta non verba. We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. As bad as the price is, as painful as the uh, price is at the pumps, it's going to get worse. You know it, I know it. Now we've got a second carbon tax coming our way, the clean fuel standard uh, tax. And um, what do the liberal government, uh, what do they do? What do they think? They brag about it. They're happy. They're happy to impose this pain. They brag about it. Even in times of inflation, we're still pushing through with our carbon taxes, so said Deputy Dimwit a few weeks ago. Here to discuss further, Franco Terrazano, National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Franco, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me on this afternoon. My pleasure. So when does the uh, the clean fuel standards uh, tax take effect? So they just released the regulations. It's going to come into full effect next July um, but like, come on, right? Like we are now facing four decades high inflation. You have Canadians that are struggling to afford to fuel up their cars on the way to work. And what does the government do? It releases its regulations for a second carbon tax. Now, the second carbon tax could add up to 13 cents to the price of gasoline by 2030. And of course, that's on top of the current 
Trudeau carbon tax that will keep on going up to nearly 40 cents per liter of gas. So by the end of this decade, we're looking at more than 50 cents per liter of gas just in the carbon tax alone. So I think we need to stop pretending this government wants high gas prices. That's exactly what they're pushing for. Right. And so what is the the clean fuel standards tax all about, like above and beyond the carbon tax, which is punitive, but what are they hoping to achieve with the clean fuel standards? I know they want to make, you know, they want us to, to buy electric vehicles and so forth, but what are the, what is the, the stated purpose of the clean fuel standards tax? Well, all of this is under the, under the guise of environmentalism, right? But like, come on, we are not going to tax our way to a better environment here in Canada. We are not going to punish Canadians, uh, force Canadians almost out of being able to purchase and afford gasoline. That's not going to help the global environment. Um, Canada makes up what, 1.5% of global emissions. So even if the Trudeau government brought all of our industries to a screeching halt, which would just inflict so much pain on hardworking Canadians, it still wouldn't do much for the global environment, um, especially when you have countries around the world that are doing the right thing. They're doing the opposite of what the Trudeau government is doing. You got the United Kingdom just announced huge gas tax relief. South Korea, Germany, the Netherlands, Italy, Ireland, Israel, India, Peru, Poland. You even have the European Parliament that is now pushing for gas tax relief. The president south of the border, even Joe Biden, is pushing for gas tax relief. So really, what what good is the Trudeau government's punishing carbon tax hikes going to do other than just make it unaffordable to put gasoline in your car? Yeah, they want us all riding bicycles and, uh, and, and eating bugs, evidently. Franco Terrazano, National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're talking about the clean fuel standards uh, tax that's coming. Now, um, are they trying to – well, they're trying to push us, obviously, into electric vehicles. Uh, although, I mean, let's face it, that's out of reach for, for most um, the average Canadian worker. Uh, they're also trying to push us into biofuels. But there's a little bit of an irony there with biofuels, isn't there? Well, I mean, where, what are we going to do? Import all of the fuels so that these companies can get around paying the tax? I mean, the whole way that this second carbon tax structured is that they're trying to push producers to reduce the carbon content of their fuels. And if they can't reduce the carbon content of the fuels, then they're going to have to pay the second carbon tax. The companies will. But guess what? We've already, already had economists sounding the alarm over who is really going to end up paying the second carbon tax. It's not just going to be those big guys, those big companies. It's going to fall on the consumer. And, and you know what? Trudeau knows this, or Trudeau should know this, or at least the people who are pulling the levers in Ottawa, they know this. You know how we know they know this? Because it's right in the government's own analysis. The government's own analysis shows that it is going to be the increase in transportation fuel costs, which is going to, quote, disproportionately impact lower and middle income households. But the government's analysis doesn't stop there. It, it, it connects the dots. It says, you know, who's really going to be impacted by this? Single mothers who are already living in lower income households and also seniors living on fixed incomes. So I, we, we really have to drop all pretense that this government doesn't precisely want what is going on right now, which is higher gas prices that is making it unaffordable for Canadians to fuel up our cars. They have nothing but disdain for us, Franco. They're at war with us. We're the enemy, apparently. Franco Terrazano, National Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, taxpayer.com, taxpayer.com. Franco, thank you as always. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. When we come back, a Canadian federal agency invested millions in a China company accused of slavery. Tom Korsky, Managing Director 
or managing editor, rather, with Black Locks Reporter is next. Standby. Let's get back at it on Newstalk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serrett Show. All right, welcome back. The Canada Pension Plan Investment Board apparently invested millions of dollars in a green energy firm in communist China that has been accused of slave labor practices. Unbelievable. Tom Korski is the managing editor at Blacklock's Reporter, and he joins us now. Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. Uh, first of all, uh, what is the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board? Who are they? What do they do? This is a federal agency, very well-paid directors, by the way. Their CEO is the highest-paid federal public employee. Makes millions. This is the board that is mandated to invest the mandatory pension plan contributions, the CPP deductions that come off the checks of 20 million workers in our country, to invest those to ensure adequate return for retirees. Their mandate is to make money. But they also have a mandate, a code of conduct that talks about ethical investment, high principles. We stand behind every dollar that we invest, says their vice president testifying in parliamentary committee. Well, let's find out. This is uh, this is unbelievable, as you mentioned, Richard. So they've invested uh, $4 million worth, or they've purchased $4 million worth of shares in a, um, a Chinese company called Longi Green Energy Technology Company. Tell me about them. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. Hey, Cricket customers, Max with ads is included with your Cricket $60 unlimited plan at no additional cost. Max is the streaming platform where you can watch Scoob, Meg 2 The Trench, The Nightmare on Elm Street Collection, and so much more. Remember me. Just log in with your Cricket username and password to experience Max on all your favorite devices. We've never seen this before. Max, the one to watch for a good scream with Cricket. Phone plan streams and standard definition. Programming subject to change. Fees, terms, and restrictions apply. See cricketwireless.com for details. Longy Green is named in a human rights report. Anything to do with solar panels, the polysilicon that goes to make up solar panels, warrants investigation. There has been evidence submitted, even to the House of Commons, 41% of polysilicon comes from one territory in China. You know it well, Richard, Xinjiang province, mm-hmm. home of the concentration camps. They have been cited. The House of Commons voted unanimously 
to condemn what has happened in Xinjiang, forced labor, forced abortion, uh, slavery, uh, forced internment. They've called it the biggest internment of a minority population since the Holocaust of all places. That's where your solar panels, polysilicon elements typically come from. This company, Longy Green Energy, has been named in a human rights report as using subcontractors who use slave labor. It's unbelievable. These are the Uyghur Muslims, a minority in China, that are being uh, rounded up, placed in concentration camps, forcibly sterilized, uh, and worse, no doubt. So they're utilizing these this slave labor to to, to produce uh, these these solar panels. Are we, in addition, are we also importing these solar panels? Well, there, there have been Canadian importers that have been named. But in this case, the CPP Investment Board, to think that you would invest the hard-earned dollars of Canadian workers after Parliament has accused China of atrocities amounting to genocide of all places on earth where you would buy $4 million worth of shares. Forget about investing that in a Canadian company. You want to put it into the one company that was named in a human rights report for using slave labor subcontractors. It's it's unfathomable, Richard. So now that the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board has been uh, outed, what does uh, Michel Leduc, the senior managing director, say for himself? Yeah, well, they they don't take calls. (laughs) CPP Investment Board is like calling the Kremlin. They don't take calls, but I'll tell you what they will do. There there, there are bills pending in the House and Senate to to put a stop to this. Never mind direct cash uh, investments. There are bills pending in the House and Senate to stop the imports of slave-made goods. And we know in the past, the former CEO of the CPP Investment Board, he used to go to parliamentary committee hearings. He would give the most beautiful climate change speeches you ever heard until we reported of the millions they were buying in Chinese coal mines. Well, they finally stopped that. The CPP Investment Board, being at that board means never having to say you're sorry, Richard, but if Mm. it gets embarrassing enough, they just stop it. So, I mean, I would think a full audit would be would be advisable. I mean, who knows what else they're investing in? Absolutely. There was a hearing even three years ago, MP from Calgary, uh, Shepherd, by the name of Tom Kimmich, said, you guys, if you're doing any business in China that comes within 100 miles of Xinjiang, you better start asking yourselves hard questions. They didn't. They didn't pay attention. They didn't listen. Richard, these people have billions under management. Spend your $4 million somewhere else. Mm, indeed. Tom, thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. Tom Korski, Managing Editor, Blacklocks Reporter. Please support independent media, blacklocks.ca, blacklocks.ca. All right, when we come back, The Survivalist, Stefan Verstappen, author of The Art of Urban Survival, will be here to help you form your own food co-op. So important. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Richard Serrett Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM.
survivalist on The Richard Serrett Show. Today it's The Survivalist with Stefan Verstappen, our emergency preparedness expert and the author of The Arts of Urban Survival. Hey, Stefan, sorry about that wrong liner, but uh, great, great to have you aboard. How are you? I'm really disappointed. <laughs> I, I didn't hear my bumper music. I know. I know. We, we, we got that one kind of confused. That's for tomorrow's. Anyway, we, um, it's so timely having you on right now. We, we, we see what's going on in the Netherlands mm-hmm. uh, with the farmers in, in absolute revolt. And I say God bless them because what the government is trying to do there is criminal. Uh, they tried to pull the same trick on the, uh, the, the, the people of Sri Lanka. They've caused massive food shortages. That's all in the government. It's all in this ridiculous uh, climate change hoax and, uh, you know, trying to introduce organic farming. It's simply not working. And uh, so no better time then to talk about because that stuff's coming here. We know that yes. uh, the, the, the prime minister uh, is going to try and institute the same types of um, reductions in nitrogen uh, here in Canada. So we'll have uh, the same battles here. So let's talk about forming a food co-op. We talked last week about the the legal, uh, the paperwork and the legal sort of infrastructure required to start your own community as a legal entity. So one of the benefits is you can you can form a food co-op. What are the benefits of that? Well, there's numerous benefits to that, but what I'm going to talk about today is going to be even easier. Yes, we can get into different types of legal structures for the communities we want to form, but let's just keep it really simple because, you know, to dive into all this paperwork at the very top, it's time consuming. And listen, folks, we don't have time. We need to supply our own means of nourishment. We need to have alternative sources of food. So I'm going to talk about two types of co-ops today. Now, a co-op is simply an association of members that agree to work together for a common cause, for a common purpose. And you can incorporate it as a, a business, or you can incorporate it as a nonprofit, or you can form it as an unincorporated association. And that's what I recommend right now, folks. You got to get busy. We're, we're running out of time now. They plan to starve us. We are facing a global famine, as we can see, like you just mentioned, with with the, uh, the farmers there in my, my country of ancestry, Holland. Um, they're going to bring that here. So listen. Let's take the easiest thing first, a grow co-op. Now, a grow co-op is where you and a few families get together and you grow your own food. You don't need a farm. You don't. We're going to get the land donated to us. Now, here in the community, I've spoken a little bit about it where where I am now in southwestern Ontario. We have a, a very good community going on here and they have opened up three gardens so what they have done is they've gotten permission uh from members within the community now it's a little bit easier here because we're in rural farm country and so there's a lot of farm uh land around us and many of the members have they don't actually operate perhaps a farm but they have you know they have a house with five acres and it's all farmland so what We've done here is that we've gotten these people to donate 
um, use of their front yard. And then they formed a community and everybody donates like one hour, two hours a week to tend this garden. So we've got three gardens. Each one is about 30 feet by 60 feet. So those are big gardens, right? And um, they, they donate their time to till the soil, to plant the seeds, to weed the garden, and to water the garden. And then at the end, when the harvest comes in, the produce is evenly divided between all the members of the gro growing co-op. So folks, do something like this. We might still have time to get in a crop of potatoes before the end of the season. Anything is better than nothing right now because you plan to starve us out. So that's what a grow co-op is. Okay, a grow co-op. All right, we'll we'll uh, we'll take a time out, Stefan. We'll come back and we'll continue to talk about the ins and outs and the details surrounding a grow co-op. Stefan Verstappen, emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival, and uh, the website formingcommunities.com, formingcommunities.com and chinastrategies.com. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Survivalist on the Richard Serrett Show. Oh, there you go. We got the right one, Stefan, this time. Stefan, first stop, an emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com, FormingCommunities.com. And right now we're talking about grow co-ops. And this will be part of a larger conversation regarding maintaining uh, food supply and food co-ops. But right now, uh, pooling resources, uh, getting some land uh, together among uh, maybe several families and, and growing your own food, putting, putting in a garden. Uh, so what are the staples uh, in terms of, I don't know, uh, how many families are we looking at here with this these particular, did you say three three? Um, Gardens, yes. Three gardens, okay. And how many, yeah, we're, how many people? We're, we're looking at 40 members in our chapter, okay? Now, we are also in association with several other communities spread out throughout uh, the county here. And so they have their own gardens as well. And we have our garden. So there's three gardens here in our area. There are 40 members approximately of our community. So we're looking at 40 families, so and what they're growing, they're growing everything, uh, onions, tomatoes, lettuce, potatoes, uh, green onions, um, um, rhubarb, um, you name it. They're growing all of it there, everything they can get. And um, they're just donating their time. That's all it is. No money, no paperwork, just donating their time. Get together with some people now. The other thing one of the members is doing is she's starting a food co-op. Now, this is slightly different. A grow co-op is where you join forces. Oh, just sorry, I, I jumped ahead. One other thing. If you live in the city, you can still form a grow co-op. You might be able to use the roof of the building you live in. You'll have to check with property management. You can use raised bed gardens up on the roof or even something like uh, you get permission to use public land. For example, you know, High Park, Toronto, um, 
I spent a lot of time in Hyde Park. I love Hyde Park. They have a grow co-op as well. They have gardens in Hyde Park. It's fenced off. There's a lock on it. Uh, but you can become a member of that grow co-op and you just have to donate your time, go to Hyde Park, do a little bit of weeding. And at the end of the season, you're going to get a big box of produce. So one of the members here is already starting a bit on the way to a food co-op. Now, food co-op is a little bit more complicated, but what she's done is very simple. She went to the local farmer's market where all the farmers and they have a website where they post what they are producing, what they have, what's come into uh, um, 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 harvest. And you can order it in bulk. So what she does then is she's uh, uh, creating or, or offering $50 boxes. So now you got 10 families. Each one's going to order $50 boxes, $500. Then you go to the food, um, uh, the, the, the farmer's market. And the farmers will give you, uh, at a bulk discount, $500 worth of produce. And then they put it in the different boxes and everybody gets something slightly different. Depends what they ordered because the farmers have their own website and they will post on their website what they have in abundance this month. You know, potatoes or tomatoes or whatever it is, even fruits and uh, um and, and honey and jams, people do their own preserves. They sell it at the farmer's market. So, again, it's a way of getting food cheap in bulk. Now, this sounds maybe like you have to order it. You know, they typically, you know, put, take the orders on a Tuesday. No, I'm sorry. They take the orders on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then on a Tuesday, they go down to the farmer's market. They pick up the order and then they separate all the items into the boxes. And then they give the boxes to the members of the community that ordered the box. This might seem like a lot of trouble, but bear in mind, there is going to come a time within the next six months to a year where you cannot go to the grocery store. They won't be open or they won't have anything in stock. Now, where are you going to get your food from? You can still get it from the local farmers. They will. The local farmers are more happy to sell to a food co-op than they are to the big chain stores because, you know, they have the whole problem of transportation and selling it to the big chain stores. And it's a lot of problem for them to set aside, you know, two, three hundred pounds of vegetables every week for the food co-op. You're doing them a favor and they're doing you a favor by supplying you with fresh, locally grown produce that you can eat. Now, I want to tell a sh quick story mm -hmm. about what, what happened here in uh, in this area, southwestern Ontario. Um, one of the local churches, their parishioners, and, and again, um, I'm not a Christian, but I really support churches and christian communities christians are good people and the churches tend to be do a lot of good in society and they already are a community so if you belong to a church already talk to them about doing things like organizing a food co-op organizing a grow up um you have your community there they're christians talk to them, get them to work together on these things. Now, what's really funny is this happened about two years ago and you weren't allowed into Walmart without the face mask. Right. Right. And then you weren't allowed to, to, to go certain places unless you could provide proof of being injected by a lethal poison as mandated by our prime minister and the members of this church. Now, I don't know, maybe they thought it was like the, 
the the mark of of the beast or something like that. But they all to a man to a person refused to wear the face mask and they refused to get the government mandated death jab. And so what they did was they bought two farms. Hmm. The, wow. the, the congregation bought the farms because you're listen, you're paying money into the church anyways. And so then the church said, listen, nobody's going to this grocery store. Uh, we're not going to comply. And how are we going to feed ourselves? And so they said, well, enough of this crap. We are going to buy our own farms. And so they bought two farms. The parishioners run the farm or they hire people to run the farm. And now they created their own food co-op, which is supplied by their own farms. So they so. You know, in three months where they come back with the with the mandates and with the passports and all that, and you can't get in to the Walmart to buy groceries. Well, guess what? They've got their food co-op. They've already got got it set up. Right. You don't need to buy own, a farm. Just, uh, you know, get a rent a tiller and um, and put in a, a big garden in your backyard. The whole gar- the whole backyard, half the backyard, a corner of the backyard. Yeah. Uh, go to your neighbors, you know, swap food. I'll give you some rapini for your broccoli. Exactly. Uh, exactly. That's how it's done. That's uh, how it's done. Grow co-op. Stefan Verstappen, emergency preparedness expert, author of The Art of Urban Survival, ChinaStrategies.com, FormingCommunities.com. Uh, Stefan, this is a huge topic. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about uh, grow co-ops and food co-ops, uh, perhaps even next week, right? Sure. Whatever you like, Richard. I'm happy to, to, to pass on the information. Fantastic. All right. Never more important than to be listening to this segment on this program. Stefan, always appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right. Hour two awaits. Uh, when we come back, or well, towards the tail end of the program, actually, uh, NASA is getting ready to unveil the deepest view of the universe ever. And uh, Paul Delaney will be here, Professor Emeritus, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. And uh, also, we'll visit, uh, we'll, we'll get a visit from Kian Bexty uh, to talk about the latest on the Dutch farmers' revolt and uh, much more. Don't go away. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard Serrett Show. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell... I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. Repeating, we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. Hey, welcome to Hour 2, and if you missed Hour 1, then shame on you, you missed a lot. But don't despair, still lots of great programming coming your way, and uh, we are all 
anticipating the uh, release of uh, images. Images of the deepest views of the universe ever taken. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. And they were taken by NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. JWST. And that's supposed to happen, well, within the hour, I think. We hope so. Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus with the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University, will be here, last order of business, uh, to talk about this. And, and um, I'm, I'm told, or I'm reading, that this is a very emotional moment for a lot of uh, scientists and, and astronomers. The deepest view of our universe ever. And uh, hopefully these photos will be released or these images within half an hour or so. Kian Bextie is a fine independent journalist with the Counter Signal, formerly of Rebel News, struck out on his own, now with Counter Signal, and he's been following the Dutch Farmers' Revolt. And you can read his uh, dispatches at DutchUprising.com, DutchUprising.com. He'll be here a little bit later this hour to discuss the latest. And of course, that's spilled over into other countries now as well. And uh, we'll also uh, speak with Eva Chipiak, a uh, lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, because the federal court has postponed the hearing on the travel ban charter challenge. It moved from September and now into October. She'll explain why. Melissa Embarki is a, a writer with the National Post. And uh, she is also the Policy Analyst and Outreach Coordinator at the McDonald Laurier Institute. She's from the Muskowakwan uh, First Nation. And last week in the National Post, she was writing about how Indigenous Canadians need a federal leader like Pierre Polyev. Melissa Mbarki, welcome back. How are you? It's been a while. Yeah, it has been quite some time. Uh, thanks for having me back. So is this kind of uh, your... An official endorsement for for uh, the leadership hopeful Pierre Polyev. It's more of an observation. Um, you know, I've been really following uh, the CP the CPC uh, leadership race, and I've been following trends on how they engage Indigenous people. You know, and you have you know candidates like Atchison who came out with a plan, uh, but it wasn't very specific. It's really similar to what you would see on the liberal side of things. And then you have Sheree, who briefly mentioned um, Indigenous issues in a French, in the French debate. And then you have Polyev, who 
has been going out to communities and meeting with Indigenous leaders and actually engaging, um, you know, young voters like myself. And, you know, it, it's that sort of campaign that kind of draws people in. And, you know, what he has to say really resonates with, you know, some of the grassroots grassroots folks who are looking for answers as to why our communities haven't changed in decades. So I think it was, well, it was in the spring, maybe March. Um, and Pierre Polyev had this uh, video and he was meeting um, uh, Chief Darcy Bear and celebrating Bear's community of white capped Dakota First Nations, their business achievements in Saskatchewan. I think they had a hotel a beautiful hotel uh, built there. And um, um, I'm not sure if there was a casino as well or a convention center. Uh, just looked spectacular. So is, is that the kind of thing that, that you're speaking of that, you know, that Polyev seems serious in, in you know, helping um, or creating the conditions where um, some of the indigenous communities can, can create their own opportunities and, and, and create their own, economic foundation. That's exactly it. You know, he is supportive of any kind of industry, like whether it's casino, whether it's a hotel, whether it's oil and gas, whether it's pipelines, you know, like he's supporting these initiatives within First Nations communities. What we're, what we have seen, you know, in the last five or so years is, you know, it looks like the government is not wanting us to move forward. You know, they put acts in front of us and they put regulations in front of us that are making it very difficult to have any sort of economic prosperity. And that's what we're speaking out against. You know, like we have, you know, one of the highest poverty rates in Canada. You know, some of those numbers are at 95% people that are unemployed. And we're trying to fix that. You know, we're trying to bring sovereignty, sovereignty to our people and, you know, have a workforce that we can be proud of. And not a whole lot of leaders are speaking on this. And, you know, we have to look at some of these barriers and red tape that are in front of us. And we need to address this sooner rather than later. I mentioned uh, Chief Darcy Bear. Um and after that video, Bear later told, I think it was the Globe and Mail, that he wouldn't be endorsing Polyev. So um, he's not whatever Pierre, you know, uh, is selling. Pierre, but Darcy Bear is not is not uh, buying. Why? I, I mean, I'm not asking you to speak for Chief Darcy Bear, but why? Why? I mean, is that kind of hesitance still prevalent among, uh, let's say, the leadership in some of the indigenous communities? It very much is, you know, um, not a whole lot of our leaders, uh, you know, speak on political issues um, on the federal level. They're more working with their communities and they're the ones that are out there, you know, dealing with suicides and dealing with our homes burning down and dealing with poverty and dealing with crime. They're too busy, you know, dealing with our communities that, you know, Folks on the federal level, it just, it's not part of our, you know, it's not part of the conversations that we're having because we're so bogged down dealing with these social issues. And it's very hard to, you know, make an endorsement. And that's fine that he didn't, you know, but what he did, what the chief did was he did meet, you know, with a potential leader and he did bring him into his community and he did show him what economic prosperity looks like and what it could look like for many other First Nations communities. So 
it opened that dialogue, you know, and we don't necessarily have to, you know, support one leader or another. We just have to get it out there that, you know, we need to address poverty, you know, that's our bottom line. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the person that we're um, bringing into our communities, we endorse them because we welcome everyone and anyone who wants to hear our stories. So, you know, even though he didn't endorse him, you know, it, he showed Canadians what prosperity can look like. Is is part of the issue here that Polyev served in cabinet under uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and Maybe there's still some resentment against the Harper um, government because initially, at least, um, he opposed the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Later, he would accept it. But initially, he I, I guess he was seen maybe as kind of a hardliner. Is, is, is that basically that Pierre Polyev has been maybe tainted by that legacy? I don't think it is. Um, I think what happened there was there were certain reasons why UNDRIP was opposed at the time. And there are reasons why it is even still being opposed today. And part of those reasons is it's not very clear on who speaks for who. That was the biggest question, you know, 10 years ago. And it's the biggest question today. Who has the right in a community to speak for them? Is it the protesters? Do they have the right to speak for us? Is it the elected chief and council? Is it an outside, you know, um, like an outside organization that speaks for us? That is what we're still dealing with today. And that should have been addressed before it went into legislation, you know, but it went in so vague, you know, there's still a lot of questions around it. And we're still trying to figure out and navigate our way through it because it doesn't, what it does is it, it makes anybody, you know, a candidate to speak for us. And that we shouldn't have allowed it to go into legislation the way it was written. But it is what it is. It's in there today. You know, what can we do moving forward? Do we have to put some amendments in there to make it more clear? Or is it working the way it is? And if it's not, how do we fix it? But in the meantime, it's it's about economic development. Uh, I mean, let's face it, not just for Indigenous communities, but perhaps especially for Indigenous communities. And, and you feel strongly that Pierre Polyev at least uh, is speaking to that uh, issue. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for, uh, for your time and uh, for your insights. Yeah, thanks for having me. Melissa Embarkey, policy analyst and outreach coordinator at the McDonald Laurier Institute and occasional columnist with the National Post. All right, when we come back, Eva Chipiak, lawyer with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, will be here to talk about a recent decision by the federal court to postpone the hearing on the travel ban charter challenge that was to take place in September. It's been moved to October. She'll be here to explain why. Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. This is disappointing, but it is what it is. The federal court has decided, uh, well, at the request of the federal government, to postpone the uh, charter challenge to the federal government's um, travel ban. Even though they suspended it temporarily, most people think it's going to be brought back in the fall. And uh, so Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland and others, are trying to uh, get a court ruling on uh, on this once and for all. But it has been moved to October. And here to explain more, Eva Chipiak, barrister and solicitor with the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Eva, welcome. How are you? 
I'm very well. Thank you. Yourself, Richard? Very well. So it's being postponed from September to October. Now, is this at the behest of the federal government or did the federal court decided it need to be moved? How did that happen? It, it was the federal uh, government's request to delay, and they had uh, three reasons that they requested the, the delay. Um, and we, as we mentioned in our uh, just our news release, that we strongly, fiercely opposed it. We want to move as as soon as possible, but the federal court granted the postponement until the end of October. And so, the three reasons that they the federal government requested the postponement. So the first reason was um, they were suggesting that because now the mandate has been suspended, uh, they're suggesting that that doesn't require an expedited, uh, really quick hearing, that a, a short delay is not going to hurt anyone. In, in other words, they wanted to make the argument about mootness. But um, we say you can't you can't ask for a delay on mootness if we haven't had a decision or a hearing on mootness. We are very opposed to this being moot for so many reasons. One being that the federal government has only said this is suspended. They said that over and over. They said time and time again that they're ready to bring this vaccine mandate back in. And and the second thing is, is even if that even if it, the the order is uh, suspended or maybe it never comes back, Canadians need to know whether or not their charter rights were violated. So that's an area we want to pursue, whether or not this uh, interim order is in place, is suspended, or is back in force. Uh, the court should be interested in this. Canada should be interested in this. The federal government should be interested in knowing so that we all are on the same page moving forward. Right. And yet the court sided with the government on this and postponed, which is kind of un, un, un disappointing to say the least. I mean, if anything, as you say, the, the, they, they're saying that there's not as much urgency than since they've suspended it. But if we take the federal government at their word, and as you say, they, they, they bring back the mandates in the fall uh, and the number of people affected right now, it's like six million vaccine free that can't get on a or well, that couldn't travel uh, before it was suspended. Uh, if we are expected to take a jab every nine months. I mean, that's going to greatly increase the number of people that would be affected by this travel ban. It should be more urgent, not less urgent. You're 100% right. And that's just another factor we're bringing into this. And that's an argument we're going to bring up, obviously, in our mootness application. So a lot has changed. I'm trying not to make this overly complicated. But what happened is uh, the federal government brought this uh, mootness application. Uh, So that was one of the reasons they said, let's delay. There's no rush. Uh, Plus, we're going to bring this mootness application, which they did. Uh, We're going to actually be arguing that in in September during that it, one day of the original five days that this hearing was scheduled for. So September 21, we have, we'll be in federal court arguing with the federal government about whether or not this matter should just be put away or if we should, if we can continue on. What's to stop the federal government for asking for another postponement? 
Nothing, nothing at all. Uh, and I meant I, I didn't get a chance to say the other two reasons, which are interesting in, in their own right, I think. So, like I said, the government asked for uh, said gave three reasons for asking for a delay. First one being the they're bringing a mootness application. The second being that it's going to take more than 18 business days to prepare a official translation from English to French of their legal argument. And the third one was because of an unexpected need to reassign a new senior uh, lawyer to the application. Um, It's just really hard to digest those reasons as uh, a lawyer for the applicant. We've worked, you know, endlessly, tirelessly um, on these files and then to have delays for an administrative reason um and the second one when there were i think over 10 counsel from the federal government on the file because one is not able to proceed um they were asking for the delay and in in the end the court said if it was just one of these three things i probably wouldn't postpone but given the three reasons together a short postponement is not they the court felt is not going to be prejudicial or mm. overly and a, a bad thing. These sound like the actions of someone who's not real confident in their case. That's just me speaking, of course. <laughs> Ava, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Ava Chipiuk, barrister solicitor with the JCCF. When we come back, Ian Bexty from the Counter Signal with the latest on the Dutch Farmers Revolt. Don't go away. The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. All right. We're going to get the latest on the Dutch Farmers Revolt. Kian Bexty is with the Counter Signal. Hey, Kian, welcome back. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. You're back home in Calgary. How many days were you in the Netherlands? Oh, I uh, have to do that. I'm terrible at arithmetic. About a week. But um, it, give or take with flight times and time changes. Uh, it, was, it was a while. It was a long time. Um, and I saw some really interesting stuff. And we're not done covering it. We're, we're staying on the beat because you know, the mainstream media, they're not touching it. They're either not touching it or they're lying about what's going on. Right. And now it seems to be uh, spreading. Not only we have the farmers, of course, uh, that are simpatico with the Dutch farmers in Germany and uh, Italy and I think Belgium. Uh, Now we have this uprising in Sri Lanka. Do you think there's any linkage? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, If you look into it, Sri Lanka actually instituted similar nitrogen policies on fertilizer. And it makes you like, you know, a month ago, I had no idea that there was, you know, I, I knew that when people, were t- the global elite were talking about pollution, they talk about carbon and carbon dioxide. I didn't realize nitrogen was a thing. I didn't realize people were concerned about it. But apparently left-wing politicians have all of a sudden gotten on board with this, uh, this idea that we need to reduce nitrogen emissions. Uh, that's happening in Canada. It's happening in Sri Lanka. It's happening in the Netherlands. And in every case... Except for Canada right now, I haven't seen quite an uprising here. People are really mad because, well, when you reduce fertilizer use and nitrogen emissions from from 
cattle and livestock, that translates directly into a reduction in production. The the idea of reducing emissions is, you know, if, uh, it's a way of enchanting urban liberals into thinking you're doing something great. The translated version, the real speak version of reducing nitrogen emissions is reducing food production, reducing the supply, increasing the cost and making people have to choose substitutes that they might not normally want to choose. Yeah, like crickets, for example. Exactly. They just opened that big uh, processing place up in, in down in London, Ontario. Ken Bexty is with us, and you can follow his latest reports on what's happening in Netherlands. In the Netherlands, go to DutchUprising.com. DutchUprising.com. Um, it's funny because the uh, the U.S. Secretary of State is still trying to link um, what's happening in the Netherlands with. Uh, the uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. Oh yeah, the, the, this is how it works. With uh, they they'll use a complete uh, red herring argument to what's really going on. You know, the global flu- food shortage that's coming that it's all Russia's fault. It's all Putin's fault. Inflation that's all Putin's fault. Um, Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. You know, they'll, they'll blame anything but the truth. In reality, these politicians are their own worst enemies. If they wanted to protect the food supply, and I, I think I told you this last time I was on, uh, the Netherlands exported $80 billion in agriculture and agri-food products in 2020. Uh, the last year data was available. It's it's huge exporter. If they wanted to protect the food supply, they would just quit tampering with it. But they can't seem to help themselves. What's uh, going on uh, in the Netherlands? There is a, a Bill Gates funded uh, grocery store, a chain of stores. I think it's called Picnic. And mm-hmm. uh, they deliver groceries via electric vehicle and so forth. One of those burned to the ground. Well, what do we mm-hmm. know so far about that? Very little. Uh, so it's tough to speculate on, you know, it, it's tough to speculate. A lot of food uh, production facilities have been burning down across the world recently. You've, you've probably probably being aware of what's going on in the United States. So, you know, what is this connected to? Is this connected to the farmer protest? There's absolutely no way of knowing right now. It would be crazy to suggest that we knew, but it is, you know, shocking to see Uh, middle of the night, whole thing goes up in flames while farmers are protesting across the country. And it just so happens to be affiliated with Bill Gates, someone who's vertically integrating himself in the food supply. He's buying up farmland in America and, He's buying up end end user delivery uh, in the Netherlands. This picnic store, uh, the the store is well known for being sort of a new age Uber of of grocery delivery, where they're able to use 
data and information to micro-target food consumption based off of what's available and what they think people will want. And, you know, when people have, when businesses have that kind of micro control over a market, especially when it's Bill Gates, people are a little bit worried about what kind of power they might exert on the market. Maybe, you know, maybe Tuesdays will, they'll only sell bug meat in 10 years. Who knows? People are worried about that kind of stuff. And when, when it, when it burns uh, to the ground in the middle of the night, people are alerted to it. Like I said, I don't know what the reason is. It's just quite, quite, highly suspect right now, uh, the fact that it burnt down. Ken Bexty with The Counter Signal. And again, you can uh, read his latest dispatches on the not only what's going on in the Netherlands, but elsewhere in the world. We mentioned Sri Lanka, and that's uh, DutchUprising.com, Dutch. Uprising.com. Uh, also, Kian, you're an independent journalist. You don't take any handouts from the government like 99% of the legacy media. How can people support your work? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's at DutchUprising.com is the best way to do it. Uh, also on our website, we're, we're currently looking for advertisers. We want to sort of move to an advertiser model. If anyone wants to advertise to a conservative market in Canada and now really a global audience, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And you can sign up on our website to sort of get a quote on that. Um, but yeah, Dutch, just reading and sharing the news is a huge part of uh, a huge important part of independent media. You know, as well as I do, it's uh, it's the people sharing the content so that we can compete with the CBC that has a billion and a half dollar marketing budget every year. It's uh, it's a tough market out there, but to share the truth, it takes people sharing it. All right. We'll take a quick time out. Come back more of my conversation with Kian Bexty, the counter signal as we continue to discuss the Dutch farmers revolt. Stay with us. Just having a little chin wag on the Richard Serrett show. News talk saga, 960 AM. Ian Bexty stays with us from the counter signal, DutchUprising.com, if you want to follow the latest. So what the Dutch government is attempting to do in the Netherlands, drastically reducing nitrogen emissions. But but as it turns out, our own prime minister has a similar plan in store for our farmers. Yeah, Justin, and this has gone really underreported in uh, in our country. The one person that was talking about it actually was Devin Dreeshen, the Minister of Agriculture in Alberta. Many months ago, he sort of raised the alarm bells and I didn't take any notice. Nobody did. But now that we're covering Mark Ruta in the Netherlands, we sort of looked in, at, into Canada and I got a message from Devin, Devin Dreeshen, and he said, Keen, you got to take a look at this. I was raising the alarm bells on this a long time ago. And what Trudeau wants to do is he wants to reduce emissions from fertilizer, from the production and from the use of it by 30% below 2022, uh, sorry, 2020 levels by 2030. So over the course of 10 years, there's going to be dramatic. Think about the food output that we had in 2020. That's going to be reduced by 30%. That's that's what that means. And Canada is the breadbasket of the world. Uh, if if not Ukraine, Canada is, is one of the largest agricultural food exporters on the planet. And he just wants to chop 30% clean off the top. That is shocking for farmers and their livelihoods, but also for people who go to grocery stores, which I presume is a large percentage of the Canadian population. They're going to be shocked. If, you, if you're already shocked by the inflation hitting grocery prices, you're going to be shocked when you see 30% fewer loaves of bread on the shelves. It always comes back to that, that number, 2030, especially when WEF politicians are involved. So over the next seven and a half years, it's going to be a slow gradual process, fewer loaves of bread on the shelves, higher prices. And the question everyone's got to ask is, are the, who, who's going to not eat? Is it going to be 
Justin Trudeau? Is it going to be his cabinet ministers, his, his children? No, they're going to eat well. It's going to be the people who are priced out of the market. The people who are lining up in bread lines are going to be people like you and me who don't have elite access uh, and, and don't have deep pockets. So the the trucker, the Freedom Convoy was one thing, and that was obviously that was um, historical and inspired, mm-hmm. as you pointed out the last time, insp- inspired in many ways the Dutch farmers revolt. But do you and I'm, I guess I'm asking you to speculate here, but you're out there in Alberta, the breadbasket of Canada. Uh, is there a mood? Uh, the, is there the mood? Is there an appetite for what's happening in in the Netherlands to happen here? In other words, you know, tens of thousands of farmers with their farm implements, tractors, combines descending on Ottawa. You know, the same type of revolt here. This is where you know, I, I, I journalism is a tough gig, especially working as an independent journalist. But one thing that I find extremely rewarding is when I get messages from people who've read our stories and then decide that they need to take action. And I've gotten a ton of messages from not just Canadian farmers, from everyone who are saying, wow, I didn't know what's going on in the Netherlands, first and foremost. Thanks for sharing that. But also, we didn't know that Trudeau's nitrogen policy was about to decimate Canadian farming. Uh, And they've actually gone out in a few places, uh, mainly in Ontario so far. I've yet to see them in Alberta. But uh, I think that... uh, the consequence of sharing stories like this is that people are going to wake up and it's, that's a good consequence of, of real credible journalism is people are able to realize what's going on and take control of their lives and, and give themselves a voice. Cause if they don't know what's going on, the you know, the main CBC is not chomping at the bit to talk about how farmers are all going to go out of business here in, in eight years because of their dear leaders policy. But when we're able to share that truth with them, what Justin Trudeau's doing and show the cold, hard facts of his policy, they're able to wake up and take action before it's too late. So in Sri Lanka, they tried to force this organic farming policy on the farmers and they immediately saw, you know, a, a, a drastic reduction in the in the production of rice. And I think rubber, rubber is a huge commodity, agricultural commodity in Sri Lanka. So the, the government basically backed off. They realized that it's a failure. Now, some of the things are still continuing with, but it, the damage is done. It's caused the shortages now and the inflation. I mean, you're, right, you're right about that, about uh, damage being done. That's a really important thing to note. Um, there's there's secondary and tertiary consequences of food supply shortages and agricultural supply shortages uh, that will be felt even after that food has returned. You know, they could reverse their nitrogen policy immediately, start producing food, but the people who starved are already starved. The, the, the machine that had had to be sold by the farmer isn't coming back to that farmer. Um, there's, there's a whole lineup of economic collapse that follows and Sri Lanka is seeing that and they're seeing that not just on the food supply they're seeing that on energy supply as well in Sri Lanka uh, just a couple of weeks ago the military was guarding gas stations uh, only certain people were allowed to fill up on certain days of course the elite politicians could roll in whenever they needed but you know that's that's uh, the the flip side of the coin is energy security as well is threatened by these very same people, uh, people who it's like you know it's it, it it's it's shocking that it's just happening all at the same time. Joe Biden shoots himself in the foot on 
on energy security. He cancels the Keystone XL pipeline, and that would solve the energy crisis in the United States. But because of you know this this scapegoat climate change issue, he says no. We need to pay these high prices. It's Putin's fault. It's not my fault. We canceled the pipeline. Uh, you're going to deal with high energy prices. Trudeau's going to say the same thing. And so is Mark Rutte in the United in the Netherlands. Food prices are higher. It's just a burden we have to pair, uh, bear because either climate change and we need to reduce emission or because Putin's invading Ukraine. Blame those guys. Blame climate change. But don't blame me for my stupid ideas. All right. In the meantime, all eyes remain on the Netherlands because that's our future. Whatever happens there. That's our future. Kian Bexty, the counter signal. Again, follow his uh, reports at DutchUprising.com. DutchUprising.com. Kian, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Today and tomorrow, NASA releasing the first full-color images taken by the agency's mighty James Webb Space Telescope. And to tell us uh, all about it, coming up next, Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. Don't go away. Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right, welcome back. Well, this is exciting. Until now, well, it's uh, there's some d- dispute as to when these photos are, are to be released. I'm just I'm, I'm just on the um, the NASA website here, and I'm just trying to see if they've officially been released yet. We're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope, and they're set to release color images some tomorrow, and some perhaps today, maybe as early as uh, well five o'clock at the White House, according to this latest update. Uh, but these images will allow us to glimpse further, deeper into the universe than ever before. Pretty exciting stuff, I'd say. Paul Delaney, Professor Emeritus, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University, here to tell us more. Hey, Paul, how are you? Oh, very good indeed, Richard. And yes, the NASA website is a little slow. We'll blame it on the president. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, there was some speculation that we might get some photos or images released a day ahead of time. So uh, to date, there's nothing been released officially yet, correct? That is correct. Like you, I've been monitoring the site, hanging on every bit or byte, whichever, uh, and it hasn't happened yet. It was supposed to be 5, then it was pushed to 5.30, and just before I joined you, uh, it still hadn't happened. I, who knows? But uh, regardless, it certainly will happen tomorrow morning if it does not happen this evening. Okay, so previously we had the Hubble Space Telescope, and we, uh, what was it, the Ultra Deep Field, and um, it revealed something like 10,000 previously unseen distant galaxies, and this just in a tiny region of the sky that, that, that was thought to be basically empty, empty space. Uh, so what are we expecting to see with the James Webb Telescope this time around? Well, many things, uh, but particularly with reference to the uh, ultra deep field from Hubble, which still is one of my most favorite iconic images of that telescope. It was such a small area of space, we selected it because we thought it was pretty well empty. Uh, And then, of course, as you've indicated, after four days or so of observing, all these wonderful galaxies began to bleed through and, and just revealed how immensely packed the universe is with stars and galaxies. We are likely to see the same sort of thing and then some from uh, the the, uh, James Webb Telescope. It's a telescope which is approximately three times the diameter, a little under that, uh, times the diameter of Hubble, which means nearly uh, 10 times as much light-gathering power. 
in the infrared, which means it's tuned for looking at very distant galaxies whose light has been redshifted. The expectation is that we are going to literally see 10 times as many galaxies when we start pushing the telescope to those limits. But of course, that's not the main aim of the exercise, although seeing more galaxies is great. It's seeing them further in space, which has really got us excited. Uh, There's something in there about uh, perhaps being able to determine whether certain exoplanets have an atmosphere. Will will the telescope images likely show, uh, show us that? Again, the telescope is tuned to look at those sorts of wavelengths. So, yes, exoplanetary atmospheres is one of the key science agendas for JWST. And, in fact, the Canadians are are front and centre with a lot of that research as well with their uh, nearest instrument, one of the instruments that was supplied by the Canadian Space Agency. So the closer exoplanets, even though they're terribly, terribly tiny, but the closer ones given the exquisite focusing capability of JWST, will come up as a real two-dimensional disk, and we expect to be able to probe spectroscopically that disk looking into the atmospheric components, something which we've only barely been able to do from the surface of the Earth and not with nearly the same level of precision as we're expecting from James Webb. So this would give us, I mean, these are the these are the planets that have us all up at night thinking about, you know, is there life on other planets? These are the exoplanets, if they have an atmosphere. So will this give us a better indication of, you know, where we might be focusing and concentrating on if we're looking for extraterrestrial life, even if it's microbial? I, I guess without raising everybody's expectations here, because I, I don't want to be roasted alive tomorrow, certainly the, the, the telescope is going to give us a better sense of atmospheric composition. And that includes, of course, what we hope are biomarkers. You know, we were looking for signs of oxygen. We'll be looking for signs of, shall I say, the, the, the crap that we put into atmospheres and so on. So the James Webb Telescope is going to be able to dissect atmospheres in a way we have not been able to do to date. Whether or not that is going to be able to definitively answer the question, yes, that particular exoplanet really does have signs of life. I'm not quite as confident in making that statement, but a big, big uh, question will be answered if we start detecting oxygen in these atmospheres, because the, the going theory is that oxygen is really associated with life. life. And if we start detecting oxygen in significant quantities in these exoplanetary atmospheres, well, it's going to be hard to say that life of some description doesn't exist there. Will the James Webb telescope images allow uh, scientists, astronomers to, to, to get a glimpse uh, into the very, you know, the past of our universe? Could they, for example, learn things about the, the Big Bang? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's perhaps arguably the most exciting aspect of the James Webb, that we'll be able to peer back to something like 100 to 200 million years after time T equals zero. At the moment when the first stars and more to the point, the first galaxies are beginning to clump together. We have got lots and lots of theories based upon how the beginning unfolded based upon what we see today. And looking back further in time, we've been able to piece together a timeline that we think represents the way the, the, the universe as a whole has evolved from time to equal zero to time today. But 
we've only been able to go back to uh, give or take 12 billion years. I know that's a long way, but we've not been able to press that extra couple of billion years. James Webb should be able to do that. And so to be able to see those first stars forming, those first galaxies clumping, those first galaxy clusters, and again, one of the big driving science uh, plans for the Canadians uh, is to look at those early clusters of galaxies. That will give us great understanding about what actually happened in and around time t equals zero. As an astronomer, Paul, is this going to be an emotional moment for you tomorrow when you first see these images? It's certainly going to be very exciting. I mean, I get emotional over all sorts of things in astronomy. So I I guess in a way, this is just yet another one, even though this has been 20 years or so in the making. I think back to when I was seeing the first images of Hubble. Yes, I'm old enough to remember that. And I, I was hanging on every bit and bite that was coming down from Hubble. And we were a touch disappointed because, of course, it, it was a bit blurry. We had spherical aberration in the mirror, which we fixed three years later. And so the second first light of Hubble was even more exciting in that regard. So, yes, I am looking forward to tomorrow. I will be on an emotional high because I go into class immediately after it's released. So the class is probably going to be a little different tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I get very excited over many aspects of astronomy and tomorrow will be, unfortunately, just another one for me. (laughs) All right. Can't wait. This is uh, exciting news. Paul, thank you so much. You're welcome, Richard. Paul Delaney is a professor emeritus, Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University. All right. Be looking for those uh, images, hopefully by this time tomorrow. That's it for me. My thanks to Jody and Declan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again, God willing. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken. That's it. That's all. For more Richard Serrett Show, podcasts, blogs, and other stuff, go to saga960am.ca. Stop talking past each other and start talking with each other. We'll see you Tuesday afternoon at 4 on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960am. Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? President Biden's administration is making major decisions, and we need your voice to be heard. The proposed ban on menthol cigarettes is in its final stages of approval, and black and brown law enforcement executives have said it could have dire unintended consequences for African-Americans. The clock is ticking. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414 and ask him to stop this proposed menthol rule. The ban on menthol could lead to an illicit market and increased crime in our communities. Call President Biden and demand that he halt the ban on menthol until there's a review of the investigative findings. Let's make sure that over-policing and racial profiling come to an end. Call President Biden at 202-456-1414. Tell him to stop targeting African-Americans with a menthol ban. Time is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.